Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are again so thankful for your love, for Jesus, for all that you've done for our salvation. We ask that your Holy Spirit be poured out to not only enlighten us, but to draw us closer to you and bring us in harmony with you and each other in your kingdom of love. Give us insight as we study today. Um, We pray that your uh, will will be done on this earth, your agents from heaven will be active on this planet, and avenues of uh, truth and light will be opened, that the world can be prepared to meet you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly, Making Friends for God, The Joy of Sharing in His Mission. And the title this week is Developing a Winning Attitude. And the first paragraph says, the, uh, the more we study Jesus' life, the more we marvel at his ability to accept and affirm people. Although he issued scathing rebukes to the religious leaders of his day, he gladly received those who were struggling with sin, plagued with guilt, and hopelessly condemned. His uh, grace was for them. His mercy extended to even the vilest sinners. The depth of his forgiveness was infinitely deeper than the depths of their sin. His love knew no bounds. No question, God's love is infinite and absolute. And it's absolutely true that his forgiveness is infinitely deeper than our sin. But was the problem with sin ever a problem with God's forgiveness? No. In other words, if Jesus didn't die, would God be unforgiving towards the sinner? Or, if Jesus didn't die, would God refuse to forgive? Or, if Jesus didn't die, would he be prohibited, even though he really wanted to, he just isn't allowed to because the law won't let him. There's a law that says somebody has to pay a penalty, and if that penalty isn't paid, then God can't forgive us. Is this the problem, that the problem is getting God to forgive us for our sin? That's what we needed. No, it was never the issue. Never the issue. Never one of God forgiving. It was one of our hearts, our minds, our attitudes of distrusting God, living in fear, preferring selfishness, doubting his goodness. In other words, we simply wouldn't believe And we still won't. The vast majority of humanity still will not believe that God forgives outright. They won't believe it. So they insist that some payment has to be made in order to justify God in forgiving. God, a legal bargain has to be struck. It's a lie. God forgives outright. But his outright forgiveness doesn't ultimately solve the sin problem. We still distrust him. We need truth to dispel lies to win us to trust. And we needed a new heart and right spirit, a new, perfect, sinless character that we could not develop. So Jesus comes to win us to trust and to win the victory as a human over sin that we couldn't win. So our sin problem is a problem in us. A problem of character, a problem of being out of harmony with God and his design for life. It was never a problem with God. And you will hear those ideas. Well, God was, once we sinned, God was angry, or God was wrathful, or God was offended, or God couldn't tolerate it. And thus, immediately, someone had to step between God and us to, to shield us from the wrath of God that was, that was pent up and, and boiling over and about to, to and, and somebody's holding that in check for us. No, that's all fraudulent. God was never the problem. We were the problem. 
God did not need something done to him to get him to forgive. We needed something done to us to get us to trust him so that we would open our heart to him to receive the indwelling spirit to heal and fix us. The lesson said no one is beyond his love. This is absolutely true. God loves everyone and never stops loving anyone. But does that mean everyone responds positively to his love? Does the fact that God loves everyone and there is nothing we can do to get God to love us more, there's nothing we can do to get God to love us less, those are true statements, does that mean because those are true statements everyone will be saved? Again, the problem isn't with God's love. His love is infinite and freely given to all, but not all believe it, value it, cherish it, desire it, want it, accept it. What does sin actually do in the heart, mind, character of the sinner? What's it do? Changes us, yes. In a particular way, does it make us more kind, more noble, more patient, more, more loving? Does it do that to us? More selfish. It sears the conscience, hardens the heart, warps the mind, destroys the faculties that respond to truth and love. God's love is infinite. It never ceases. But some people change themselves so much that they become immovable. Immovable. No amount of truth or love will actually transform them. They flee from it. They beg for the mountains to cover them from it. King Herod, I believe, would be an example of this. When, if you remember, uh, he had changed himself so much that by the time Jesus was brought before him in his trial, he wanted Jesus to do parlor tricks for him, miracles. And Jesus wouldn't even answer a question, wouldn't even respond to him. Is it because Jesus was no longer, Jesus didn't love Herod anymore? Or did Jesus still love Herod? He loved him, but Herod was beyond reach. He had seared his conscience, hardened his heart so much, the truth that had been given to him over and over again through John the Baptist and perhaps others, that nothing Jesus could reveal to him would have actually converted him. Intimidated him, yes. He could have responded in the way Pharaoh did if, if Jesus would have, or the way the people that came to arrest Jesus did, if Jesus would have flashed some divinity, done something that was very intense. Herod might have fallen on his knees with fear. But as soon as the moment passed, he's in rebellion again. Think about the people that came to arrest Jesus. When he picks up the ear, puts it back on, a flash of divinity goes through. They fall down as dead men. That's why... Peter thought he had an opportunity, whipped out a sword. But as soon as the miracle's over, what do they do? Do they go, oh, this is God. We are misinformed by the high priest. We need to worship him and support him. No, they arrested him anyway. Uh, it doesn't say it, but more than likely, they had, because this is how human minds work, they just had an event happen. They had to give an explanation to themselves that allowed them to continue down a destructive path, so they had to rationalize. So they probably told themselves something you heard the Pharisees say earlier in the Scriptures. He, this is the power of Beelzebub at work. This is Satan's power at work. 
And that's what happens when you harden the heart. It doesn't matter. Truth and love revealed is rejected. So the problem, again, isn't God's infinite love. The problem is the condition of the heart and mind of the sinner. Regarding developing a winning attitude, which is the title of our lesson for this week, I thought maybe we would uh, take some in-depth Bible study this week and look at Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 32, and we'll break it out and unpack some of these verses. This is from the NIV. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. What makes their thinking futile? What is the basic premise of the world? The basic premise of the world. And I mean the world, when I say the world, the unconverted, not God's kingdom world. It doesn't matter what country you're in. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. The basic premise of the world is me first, power over, and justifies the means, survival of the fittest, fear-centered, fear-driven, might makes right, imposed law, enforced obedience. This is the thinking of the world. The methods of the world are futile. Why? Why are they futile? Because no amount of externally imposed might and power can heal hearts and minds. It's not possible. You can never heal a heart and mind by bringing more external threat and punishment down on people. It's futile. In fact, it will make it worse if you try. The way that seems right, there's a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. That's the way of the world. This type of thinking leads religious Views leads to religious views and practices that are legal in, in order, the, in order to bring a sense of security. They want the legal rules. It, it, because what happens here in this futile way of thinking is it brings a diminishment of the fear that is infectious in the heart because of sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran in here because they were afraid. We all have this fear. And this legal order brings a diminishment in their fear. But it's a false security. A delusion or illusion. There's an illusion and a delusion. Illusion is like when you see um, out in the desert the heat rising and you think there is an oasis. That's an illusion. It's something that appears to be so and, and you're drawn to it. A delusion is a fixed belief. You actually believe it's that way. This leads to both illusions and delusions. Seems to be right. I really believe it's that way. Depending on how deeply one believes it, illusion or delusion, the appeal of the penal legal view with its various lists of rules gives the sense, here, understand why then. We have fear. We have fear of, of, of disintegration, fear of death, as the Bible says. Why does this legal type of stuff, the world's methods, give a, give a sense of false, sense of security, but it's false sense, but why? Because it gives the illusion that you're in control gives you the illusion you're in control. See, as long as I can figure out the right doctrines and pledge to accept them, I'm good. As long as I can identify the right rituals and perform them in the right way, get baptized in the right way, I, I've, I've checked my box, I'm good, I'm safe now. 
As long as I, as, I, as I know the right rules, the right law of God, and, and I perform or, or keep it in the right way, and, and or accept Jesus as my law keeper and legally claim his perfect law keeping to my record in heaven, either way, I'm good. I'm safe. I have, I have security now. If I do all of this, then whenever I feel fear, whenever I feel guilt, whenever it assails me, it makes me feel inadequate, I can actually have safety in my law-keeping. They're erased out of the book in heaven. When I stand in the judgment, I, I won't be judged because Jesus' blood has paid it, so I'm safe. I'm secure. Even though inside I feel fearful and afraid and inadequate, and I don't want anybody to know anything I've done in the past because if they know they'd never loved me, I have security in my law-keeping. This is why it appeals to people. This is why it, 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 it keeps sustaining itself. It's a false sense of security, though. It's not real. Because this type of religiosity or methodology does not change the heart. The heart isn't healed. The heart's still fear-ridden, self-centered. There's no renewal of character. Not only does this penal legal lie that infects Christianity lead to false security, it actually prevents, it obstructs the transformation of heart because it all simultaneously teaches that God is the enforcer, the source of inflicted pain from whom we need protection. So we have to have someone hide us from him and mediate between us, which undermines your ability to trust and invite him in, which is what you need to do to have the change of heart. It's quite, quite evil. And it's the predominant view in Christianity. And it's the view of all pagan religions, all false religions. It is only by rejecting the imposed law lie, returning to worship the creator, him who made, understanding his laws or design laws, that we see that sin is a condition of being that destroys the sinner and only our creator can heal it if we trust him. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Notice, they're, they're, they're thinking it's futile because they accept the ways of the world, the ways of the world impose rules and, and systems of, of imperialism and survival drives. And what happens to that separates them from God. They're dark in their understanding. What causes darkness? Lies. Lies about God, lies about sin, lies about salvation and what the plan of salvation means. And that's all rooted in lies about God's law. God's law works like human law. Once we accept that, and you hardly ever. When was the last time on any Christian radio, Christian um, uh, church, uh, Christian uh, TV program, you actually heard preachers speaking about the lie taught about God's law being imposed imperial? When do you ever hear it? It is accepted truth. It's orthodoxy that God's law works like human law. And it's a complete fraud. This is the wine of Babylon. This is the infection. This was Satan's counterattack to the revelation of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And they always misrepresent because God's law is like human law. They misrepresent God as the source of punishment. So even if they are religious which essentially most of these people are very religious. Their religiosity is legal, seeking to appease their gods, whether with their own works, whether with animal sacrifices, or whether with the sacrifice of a sinless human 
blood offering. They're still seeking to appease the anger of their imperial punishing God. To do penance of some kind, to propitiate wrath, to turn away anger. In other words, none of them, the futile, they're in darkness, the futility of their thinking. None of them actually knew God because they all operated on a false paradigm that warped their understanding of reality itself. Thus their mind and their thinking became futile. This is the same process that infected Christianity and led to the dark ages. Darkness covers the people, gross darkness the people. Yet the people remained religious. And such darkness about God, even though people remain religious, leads to hardening of the heart. Because it's self-centered, fear-based, not based in truth and love. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, what's meaning losing sensitivity? Your heart is no longer a sense. Your heart is hardened. Their heart becomes hardened. Why? Because of what process? This is how reality works. This is not an infliction. This is not an arbitrary rule. This is not God looking over. Oh, they don't believe the right thing. I'm going to use power to make it this way. This is reality at work. How design law operates. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Not being reconciled to God, having accepted false paradigm of legality, of punishing God, leads to not peace, but ever-increasing guilt, shame, inadequacy, fear, searing of the conscience, which leads to self-indulgence, get for self, advance self, gratify self. Either through direct pleasure seeking or through self-medicating. Intoxicating self to numb the guilty conscience. Tim. Yes. This is a subsection of the law of sin and death, which is the law of diminishing returns. Yes. And you need ever-increasing... Pleasure, ever-increasing medication, ever-increasing... Dosages. Yeah, whatever, intensity, dosages for your um, for your hedonism. Yep. This, because false religiosity, legal religion, cannot heal hearts. And there is a gross inadequacy that it brings. And so they seek to seek pleasure. Now, I don't know if you know, I'll just tell you the da- data. Pornography rates and substance abuse rates are no different in Christian homes than those, ho- those people that, that don't identify as Christian. Uh, a Barna research, uh, 2020, I believe, was the, was the date of this. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a little bit before that. But recently, Barna research, 57% of Christian pastors and 64% of youth pastors admit to struggling with pornography. Why? Because legal theology cannot change the heart. It can't. It's impossible. And often they're even told not even to look for it. You're going to be declared to be righteous when you set the payment of Jesus, even though you're not. You're not righteous. And you'll continue to sin and live unrighteously. But don't worry, because your, your sins have gone beforehand into heaven, and they've gone into the judgment, and they're being purged from the record books, and all sins, past, present, and future, are put on Jesus and paid for him on the cross. And if you accept his payment, then you're legally declared to be righteous, even though you're not. Don't worry about it. Then you see the corrosive, when you understand how reality works, I tell a cigarette smoker, hey, don't worry about it. Jesus is in heaven, and he's got perfect lungs, and you're going to be declared to have perfect lungs, even though you're not. So smoke as much as you want. It doesn't matter. 
Do you see the idiocy in that? And that's what nominal Christianity are telling Christians, and there's no power. There's no victory. There's no healing. By the way, happiness is a byproduct. Byproduct means it comes from something else. You can't get it directly. Sawdust, byproduct of woodworking. You don't go out and get sawdust in nature directly. It has, somebody has to, something has to work with wood. Even if it's in termites, something has to work with the wood to give you sawdust. Okay? Happiness is a byproduct. It comes from something else. And it, what it comes from? It comes from healthiness in all domains. To the degree you're unhealthy physically and you're sick and you're in pain, you're not happy. Uh, relationally, you're in the middle of a divorce or your kids won't talk to you, you're not happy. Spiritually, guilt, shame, unresolved sin, you're not happy. Psychologically, in your own head, I'm no good, I can't do anything right, nobody likes me, I'm the biggest loser ever. Uh, psychologically un- unhealthy, you're not happy. Happiness is the byproduct of healthiness. And healthiness only happens in harmony with the laws of health. And, and meaning, as a total being, you can only have healthiness in harmony with God's design laws for life. To the degree you violate them, now maybe it's a very small violation and it's not even measurable. You smoked one cigarette when you were 17, one time in your life. That was a violation of the laws of health. But that's the only time you've ever done it. You probably can't measure the negative impact on your life. We've all done some things that are not perfectly healthy. But to the degree we persist in activities... Physically, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, that are unhealthy, then we actually reap the unhealthy consequences and we're not happy. And when we're not happy, we have a dysphoria. We're, we don't feel good inside. We're not content. We're not at peace. We're uneasy. We're restless. We want something. We want to feel better. And what do people do? I see this in my practice all the time. Uh, what, what's your goal in coming to I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I get this all the time. I want to be happy. I have to educate people. You can't pursue happiness directly. You can identify in your life where you're out of harmony with health and health principles and the laws of health. And you can pursue healthiness. And as you pursue healthiness and achieve healthiness, you'll begin to experience happiness. But, but what happens is people don't want to do the hard work. They don't want to do the work of dealing with whatever it is in their life. I've got a relationship I've got to deal with. I've got to forgive somebody who's wronged me. That's hard work. Or I need to seek forgiveness from somebody that I've wronged. That's harder work. Can be harder work. That's right. Yeah. They don't want to do the hard work. I've got to deal with some stuff in my head that's been there since childhood that makes me think I'm no good and I'm inadequate. Hard work. And so instead, people substitute pleasure-seeking. Because while you can't pursue happiness directly, you can do something to make you feel good right now. You can get a high. You can get a buzz. You can get a, a, a relational high. And this is, this is what leads people into those cycles of addictive relationships we call codependent relationships, where they get that new love and they're high and they're on a buzz, but it never lasts. And the old relations crash and burn over and over again. But they're constantly pursuing because they need to feel good. They're looking, they're, I need to feel good. They pursue, pl- they substitute pleasure seeking. And that's what the text is talking about. 
having lost sensitivity, sensitivity to the right and wrong of God's reality. They've given themselves over to sensuality, seeking the impurity. They're seeking pleasure because they're not actually pursuing health. Verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Christ, Messiah, Savior, Rescuer, Remedy, Healer. Christ means Messiah, our Deliverer. You did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus You were taught to regard your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Remember, developing a winning attitude. That's why we're focusing on this. The attitude of your mind. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What's being described here? What does it mean to know Christ? Does it mean to know about him? To know the facts and have the right doctrines? That doesn't mean the facts are irrelevant. They're just not most pertinently relevant. Facts are important. No question. But can somebody actually know Jesus? Uh, come to surrender their heart to him. Be like him in character. Love others, but not actually know that as a baby he was born in Bethlehem. Can, can, they, can they not know that fact, but still know Jesus? Yeah. Can somebody know those facts? In fact, Herod said, where is the Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem. Yet not know the truth about God. Not know Jesus. They know the facts, though. So when it says know Christ, it's not ultimately having every detail of factual history correct. It's about knowing him the person. Knowing his character, knowing his methods, knowing his love for you, knowing how he operates, knowing how he treats people. I know him. He would never do that. He didn't behave that way. That's not how Jesus operates. I know Jesus. Knowing Christ leads to what? If we know Christ, if you remember this, we know him, then it leads to regard your formula, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, to be created like God in true righteousness and holiness. Is what's being described there a legal process? The apostle is not describing that we must remember a list of bad deeds, confess them, claim a legal payment of Jesus' blood to an account in heaven, and then believe we're declared righteous even though we're not. He's not describing that. That's a fraud. He's describing actual transformation of the inner being so you have new motives. You're a new person. This other thing keeps people trapped because they claim the legal without any transformational, and thus they stay stuck. When we know Jesus and are one to trust, we open hearts and entrust and invite him in. We ask for the renewing agency of the Holy Spirit, who then removes the destructive desires, and we get actually new desires, new motives, new longings. We actually are uncomfortable with the old ways of things. I mean, come on, you've all experienced this, haven't you? The old stuff that you might have done and justified, now you actually cringe at doing. Isn't it right? 
That's the Holy Spirit changing the heart. We become new creatures in Christ. We become, get your mind around with this now. I'm gonna, uh, maybe I should go back and read this first. It says, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We become like God. We become God-like in righteousness and holiness. Partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Do you consider yourself when you're walking in the community, I'm God-like? Not in some arrogant, egotistical, self-centered, earthly way of dominating over and making everybody bow at your feet. Not walking into a, a supermarket and saying, hey, you need to kneel when I come in. That is not like God. That's Satan's version of God. We become godlike in love, in truth, in humility. The actual righteousness, this is actual. I want you to hear this. Literal, real, experienced, in the being, righteousness, holiness, transformation of God. It's not some legal fiction of declared righteousness in a book somewhere in the cosmos while you remain unrighteous which is what's taught in most theologies in Christianity. That's not what this is. Remember what the Bible says, when Christ returns, we see him face to face because we are declared to be like him. No, we are like him. True righteousness by faith is the transformation of the heart motives and attitudes to become like Jesus through trust in him. There's nothing legal going on. It's actual. It's genuine. It's healing. It's transformational. Thus, our life histories of sin, the deeds we've committed in the past, they never change. That's history. We change and we become new people with new motives. King David, when we get to heaven and we get to meet King David, and an earth made new, free of all sin, he will still be the father of Solomon. And how did Solomon come into being? Through a holy and righteous relationship ordained from the beginning by God with witnesses and a good wedding ceremony in a church. Now Solomon came through a relationship that was adulterous to start with, and that history didn't change. Uriah didn't get resurrected. The adulterous relationship didn't get erased from history. David was convicted of his sin, and David, read Psalms 51, repented and had a new heart and right spirit. And after David was changed in the inner man, then God blessed the relationship that started out through exploitation and abuse, and Solomon came forth from that. Throughout all eternity future, that history doesn't change. What changed is David. That's true for all of us. There's a fraudulent thing taught in Christianity that, that somehow you get your history erased. You don't get your history erased. You get fear and selfishness, lust and perversion erased out of your character. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor for we are all members of one body members of one body certainly not 
There must be a Jewish body, a Greek body, a white body, a black body. Certainly we cannot all be members of one body. Or does it mean there's neither Jew nor Greek? We are all one in Christ. In God's kingdom, notice what I'm saying here, folks. In God's kingdom, all lives matter. That is clearly not true in human kingdoms. Throughout all human history, go to any kingdom, go to ancient Rome, go to Persia, go to Babylon, go to China, go to Japan, go to Egypt, go to the United States. You'll never find a human government ever where all lives matter. They clearly don't. Only in God's kingdom do all lives matter. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Oh. Oh, 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 oh. Remember, we're talking about renewing your attitude to be holy and righteous like God. Be God-like in your attitude. That's what we're talking about here. To be renewed in the renewing of your mind. Huh. Do we find a lot of anger being manifested in our society today? Do we find a lot of times the anger goes on after the sun goes down? Interesting, the Bible had some insight into that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Riots every night in cities, violence. How do you think Jesus would act? Do you think Jesus would be out there rioting with these people? Do you realize this is not the way of the genuine Christian? who is to be renewed in his mind to have an attitude like Christ. Does that mean we're not to have anger? It all depends on the type of anger and the focus of the anger. There's a difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. Righteous anger is always motivated by love for people and focuses on destroying the disease of sin in order to save people. Sinful anger is motivated by selfishness and focuses on punishing and hurting people and destroying people while perpetuating the sin and the selfishness. Example, doctors have righteous anger towards pathogens, measles, polio, Ebola, COVID, corona, and diseases, cancer, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis. Doctors have righteous anger and seek to completely destroy these diseases for the purpose of saving people. But doctors do not have righteous anger towards their sick patients, even if their sick patients don't comply with the treatment. Doctors also get angry at activities that spread the disease purposely. HIV-infected people who won't use um, condoms or share dirty needles. But doctors still love their addict and prostitute patients who may be spreading the disease. It's just that while seeking to cure those who are infected, doctors want to prevent the disease from hurting others. Doctors offer remedies 
to stop and and, and resources to stop the spread. But they also get angry for those who could be saved, healed, cured, and refuse the cure. Not angry that they want to destroy the patient. They're angry it doesn't have to be this way. You could be saved. We could heal you if you just let us. How much more will the person, the doctor, be angry if the dying individual is their own child who won't take the remedy? Why are doctors angry in such situations? Because they love the dying person. They have no desire to hurt or destroy the person in their anger. They're angry at the circumstance that won't allow them to save the person. Do you see the difference? This is righteous anger. This is the anger that God expresses in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 11. This is from the remedy. And the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear the voice offering healing and restoration, do not reject the true remedy and darken your minds as you did in the rebellion in the desert during the opportunity to partake of God's cure where your fathers broke my heart by trying their own remedies and rejecting the truth which I brought and for 40 years patiently tried to heal them. That is why I was so angry with what happened to that generation and said, their minds continually reject the healing truth and they refuse to practice my ways of health and live. So I granted them their persistent choice and said, since they refuse the truth, the remedy I freely offer, they will never be able to enter my rest and get well. This is why he was angry. They wouldn't let him heal him. This is, this is very righteous anger. Selfish anger, however, is not motivated for love for people. It's angry anger at the suffering that's, uh, that, uh, excuse me, it's not angry at the suffering that sin causes others. Rather, selfish anger is an anger about the wrongs we experience done to us or to what we value, not for love for, for here's some examples. Anger at not getting our way. Anger at having our ideas challenged or refuted. Anger at having our projects and pursuits interfered with. Anger at having our self-promotion thwarted or named, our name maligned or misrepresented. Anger at being assaulted, injured, or robbed. Anger at having been embarrassed. Anger of envy. Someone else getting what we have wanted. Anger of perceived unfairness. Someone has more than we do or gets privileges that we, be, we believe we deserve or perhaps even do deserve. It's not fair. Anger when someone else questions our authority, disobeys us or disrespects us. Anger at having not lived up to family standard some family standard, and you're angry that you didn't live up to it. All this, and this type of anger can be projected out of the self onto proxies. 
We can see others in our environment, in our world, in our society who approximate our plight, our disadvantage, our, our injury in some way. And we unconsciously project our own selfishness, our own desire for vengeance out onto them. And we get angry at their plight and, and their mistreatment and their injury. And we vent our anger at the perceived exploiters of those people. And we deceive ourselves that because we're not angry about what happened to us, we're angry what happened to this other person. And that, and now we're going to use our anger to punish the people that, did, that were acting selflessly and righteously. It's a big con. Self-deception. It's happening all over the world right now. Verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. If, if people were applying the attitude of Christ, would they steal, riot, destroy other people's property? This is not Christian. Would they get busy working in their communities to help build up instead of tear down? Certainly. Absolutely. Sign law. Law of exertion. Law of exertion. So you can be an army of law and get it. Does God want Christians who represent him in character, who take on the absolute holiness and righteousness of God that we just read about, to support movements that use methods of the world to achieve their ends? Does he want us to do that? Even if those goals of those movements are righteous goals. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Is lying wholesome talk? Of course not. What about gossiping and rumor mongering and spreading? How about if the rumor's true? How about if, the, if you're spreading something that's true, uh, that's derogatory about somebody, and it's not a lie, it's true? Is that, is that wholesome talk? What about slander or speaking unkindly or vulgar? What about if it's for the purpose of ensuring your candidate wins the next election? Is it godly and righteous to speak unkind things of the opposing candidate if it helps you win the election? And it's important to win the election so that we can have the right policies put in place to protect the institutions of God. You know, when I speak of helping your politician win the next election, did you think I was speaking about human governments? Did that what pop into your mind? Hmm. Could it also apply to the church? And elections for church offices? You've never seen that in the church, have you? Let's, uh, let's make sure our candidate wins. We will spread things around about someone because we need to have the right office holders in the church because we have right policies we have to protect. We certainly wouldn't want women to be ordained in the church, so we have to protect the, the office holders. So I'm just using an example. I'm not saying that ever happened. But could it? Is there a difference between speaking clearly about the differences in policy, methods, visions, goals, plans, beliefs, doctrines, ideas? Is there a difference between speaking clearly about those things and attacking a person? See, it's, it's righteous to stand up and speak the truth. Jesus did this constantly, presenting the truth on, on principles, ideas, methods, beliefs, doctrines, constantly present the truth. But 
not attacking people. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What grieves the Holy Spirit? Very simply, rejecting his agency. He is the spirit of truth and love, rejecting truth and rejecting love, preferring lies, deception, selfishness, and fear grieves the Holy Spirit. That's what does it. Rejecting his agency. When he comes to your heart with truth, when he comes to your heart with love, and you choose the path of deceit, you choose the path of holding to lies, you choose the path of holding to falsehood, you choose the path of selfishness, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. And you're hardening your heart and searing your conscience. Verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Can you see why the genuine Christian in our society, the genuine Christians do not align themselves with movements that fail to love every human being equally? We don't. Why the genuine Christian won't align with movements that use methods of violence and deceit and slander that incite fear, hostility, that coerce, that intimidate to force their way upon others. The genuine Christian won't align with those methods. Do you see how the devil is manipulating society right now by inciting? And here's, I want to see his tactic again. He'll incite an absolute wrong. Some innocent person or some person gets treated in a way that they're, they did not deserve. Everybody looks, that's wrong! It's outrageous. It's misconduct. And then he inspires the people in society to see the outrage and then to seek to remedy the outrage by using the very methods that were perpetrated upon the person. Violence was done to this person. This person was killed and he should have been killed. We will fix it by using violence on other people. It's like trying to get rid of wetness with water. You can't do it. It only leads to more violence. We are not to participate with such methods. We are to come out of those systems and be separate. We understand that the only God-ordained use for human governments is to restrain acts of evil, to hold in check those powers that would seek to harm. That's the only righteous use in a sinful world of physical might and power. Parents can restrain a child from running into the street by physical might, but they cannot use physical might to make their child love them. Doctors, psychiatrists can restrain a psychotic patient to keep that psychotic patient from harming themselves. We cannot use physical might to make the patient trust us. Municipalities can use physical might to restrain thieves and, and rapists by putting them in prison, restraining them. We cannot cause those people by physical might to become um, good citizens and trustworthy citizens. Nations can use physical might to restrain an invading army, but they cannot turn the invaders into friends by using physical might. Understand the limitations of physical might. Satan's big trap is to see a righteous cause 
and then believe that the righteous application to achieve the goal is to get the right legislators and the right laws passed and then punish those who don't obey those laws. That's the idea that so many people believe is righteous. It's completely corrupt. You can't do it. It only leads to more rebellion and ultimately will lead to rebellion. This is what happens in every society that in some form, when the governments become too oppressive and repressive, liberties violate to the point that there's rebellion against the government. Sunday's lesson, we're just getting to Sunday. I have some real important things to get to. The last place the disciples expected to find hearts receptive to the gospel was in Samaria, according to the lesson. Why? What was the basis of the disciples' belief about those who were reachable for God's kingdom? What was their basis for their belief? Yes, bigotry, bias. They had biases about nationality, genetics, gender, race. Where did they get such ideas? Why didn't they know better? They were taught. Yes, they were taught, exactly. Were the disciples themselves, prior to Jesus, coming to teach them, were they studying the scripture for themselves? Going to synagogue, asking for the scripture, reading it, studying it for themselves, coming to their own conclusion? Is that how the disciples approached their understanding of reality? Or did they allow themselves to be told by their leaders what to believe? Which method did the disciples use? They allowed themselves to be told by their leaders. What about today? In our society? Are we teaching people today how to think for themselves, how to examine the evidences, how to understand the design laws of God, how reality actually works, to discern truth from error, to come to their own conclusions? Or are people in our societies being taught to surrender their thinking to those in authority? Whether it's teachers at the university, well, they got a PhD, they're the expert. Whether it's church leaders, well, they're the pope, they're the pastor, they're the bishop, they're an authority. They've got a, I've got a doctoral degree in theology. Who am I to question? Whether it's governmental leaders, whether it is media personalities. He's a news anchor. So-and-so. Do we surrender our thinking and just accept what we're being told? Or do we develop critical reasoning skills, the mature are those developed by practice, the ability to discern the right from the wrong, Hebrews 5.14. Who is God trying to reach with the gospel today? What role does genetics, race, nationality, or gender play in whom is savable by God? None. Completely no role at all. It's irrelevant. What's relevant is character. Hard attitude. Who do you trust? Whose methods do you value? What is our responsibility for others in society today? The Christian principle, we are to you know, spread seeds, seeds of truth. We present truth in love, leaving people free, and treating every human being as a child of God with value and with love and with respect and with dignity, with equality. But if some people reject the truth, Jesus gave instructions, some people reject the truth, don't want it. You don't punish them. You just move on. 
to speak to those who want to hear. Shake the dust off your feet, he said. If they don't like what you're saying, if they disagree with you, don't argue, don't get in a fight, don't seek to punish them, don't retaliate, just move on. We pretend, leave them free, leave them free. Do you understand there's a big problem in our society today? That there are movements afoot in society that no longer want to leave other people free to believe differently. They don't want to leave you free to believe differently. There are movements afoot that want to punish those who believe differently or practice different principles in how they live. It's a violation of the law of liberty. It always results when these methods go into force, where we're going to coerce and pressure people, love is damaged, a desire to rebel is instilled, and if people go along, individuality is eroded and we become empty shadows that think through the lens of other people's minds. This is Satan's goal. Understand, this is Satan. He's trying to achieve it. What's he want to do? He wants to destroy love. He wants to incite rebellion. And he wants to destroy individuality. That's what he wants. How does he get there? See, he wants human beings to become passive, helpless, incapable beings that can't think for themselves, that simply follow the most powerful one around. Some of the movements going on right now are so emotionally, economically, and relationally abusive, they're unwilling to give people freedom to actually have a different perspective or view, that many people in our society are intimidated and are slowly losing the ability to think and discern for themselves. It's the inevitable consequence of violating the law of liberty. You will slowly become a shadow person. They start thinking like the person or the mob who threatens them. I have patients who are in relationships that are, that in which they're abused by their spouse, some physical, some emotional. If you don't do what the abusing spouse wants, the, the spouse, uh, we will, and we'll take the physical aside. We'll just leave the emotional. The spouse may yell at you, may curse you, may call you names, may criticize, may mock you, may embarrass you, may withhold money from you, may uh, abandon you at a restaurant and make you find your own way home. Uh, I'll, I'll never physically harm you, but constant emotional pounding of you if you don't do things their way. This does not incite more love. Love is damaged. There is a desire in the heart to be free of that treatment, to rebel, to get out, to get your freedom back. But if you don't, if you don't get your freedom back, if you stay, the inevitable consequence is that the abused party slowly begins to lose their individuality and think through the lens of the abuser. And they'll start thinking things like, they're out somewhere and a friend says, hey, would you like to go and do such and such? Would you like to go play tennis tomorrow? And instead of going, oh, well, it's my schedule, they'll go, oh, what will my spouse say? Will they be upset if I do? I better not because I don't want to upset them. They're not thinking with their own mind anymore. They're losing their individuality and only coming to see the world the way their uh, dominating spouse would see it. Truth is being suppressed in this environment. This is evil. Understand, it's a violation of God's law, the law of liberty and the law of love. And it's Satan's method to destroy individuality and occurs because truth is not on the side of the abuser. If the abuser had truth, the abuser would simply present truth and love. And the truth is always persuasive for those who are sensitive to truth. And they would have a loving conversation with their spouse to explain why this is a healthier and more reasonable approach to go. But they would leave them free to 
trial and error and realize that when you don't follow truth, there's always pain involved, and, and they'll eventually learn. Okay? But when you have no truth, you don't want the truth. You have to silence the voices of truth. And this is what's happening in the cancel culture of our society today. They cannot, they cannot achieve their goals with reasoned presentation of truth to persuade to a better way. So instead, they use rage, name-calling, hostility, abusive language, verbal and physical assaults, canceling of events to create fear in the hearts of people who just see things different, who just have a different perspective for the purpose of silencing the voices where people say, I don't want the hostility, I don't want the conflict, I don't want somebody to blow up, I don't want somebody to yell at me, I'll just keep quiet, I'll just go along. And so you say, well, should I put this out there? Should I say this? Don't say it. You're going to get, you're gonna get people are going to be critical. People are going to call you this. People are going to call you that. But, it, but am, I say, am I actually saying it? No, you're not saying it, but that's what they're going to say. Every party is injured in this process. The people who surrender their individuality are injured. The people who are fearful of views that are not their own are injured because they are denied the opportunity to process the truth. The truth is no longer presented to them. Everyone remains silent for fear. This is not how Jesus operated. We present the truth in love and we certainly don't seek out people to cause confrontation. And if we know they don't want to hear it, we move on to other fields, but we don't stop presenting the truth. We must never surrender our individualities to others. We must never accept and go along with lies merely to avoid upsetting someone's feelings. Again, we don't need to seek people out to throw truth in their face to agitate them. That's true. We don't need to do that. But we can't modify the message simply because some person out there somewhere may hear the truth. Do you know when you preach Jesus, there are people who don't accept Jesus. They're not Christians. They get offended. You shouldn't preach Jesus. That offends people. Oh, okay, let's not preach Jesus anymore. This type of mentality, it's destructive. Monday's lesson. Our attitudes, first paragraph, determine our abilities to influence others. A harsh, critical, and unfriendly attitude is going to drive people away. I, I got to tell you, um, this is something I pray about. Some of you online, you'll be happy to know I do pray about regularly that I have a, a kinder and, and more winsome attitude. I know I can be direct, and I know sometimes I can s sound abrasive. So I really pray that I can be more with and, and And some of you who know me for years know that my wife has really, really, really polished me up quite a bit. I'm much more gentle than I used to be. And God's still working on me. I'm, I'm, and, and so I appreciate your prayers along those lines. Why is she shaking her head? Yeah. <laughs> but so, so presentation is important. I give this metaphor. Imagine your favorite meal. And it's just been cooked perfectly the way you like it. And they present it to you on a silver platter. And you're very hungry. That's very appealing. How about the same meal prepared the same way presented to you on a garbage pail lid? It doesn't have as much of an appeal, does it? So presentation does matter. It does. It really does. But presentation ultimately isn't as important as what's being served to you. You, you can't. It's not either or. It's both. Okay. Presentation matters. But what, what, what happens is in our society today, people are often losing the substance because of the presentation. 
And, and, and what I've noticed in my practice, because I, I get to know my patients, and I have patients that are good-hearted people. They're good. They care about people. Some of these people are in health care. They they work uh, uh, volunteering volunteering themselves to help others. But they come from either a culture, maybe a northern state. (laughs) Maybe. Okay. In which, to some people around here, they sound harsh, they sound blunt, they sound direct, they sound, and they're they're interpreted as as being uncaring, but they're not uncaring. It's a style that they grew up... Or I I have others who have Asperger's syndrome, which they have normal language skills, but they have no sense of social cues at all, and they constantly come across as being rude and and uncaring, even though they're not. Many of you may remember the old TV program called Bones, in which the uh, main character was Dr. Temperance Brennan, who, as the seasons unfold, is a deeply caring, kind, compassionate person, but she clearly is depicted as having Asperger's syndrome because she has no clue at all about social graces and constantly offends people with her bluntness. And the point I'm making here is presentation matters, but it's not as important as the truth. And the mature person is able to see beyond the mere initial presentation to the heart of the person. One of the things in society today, it's all about presentation. Substance doesn't matter. It's all about your persona. It's all about the image you create on your media channel. I will tell you the greatest con men, put this into practice, folks, are the ones who are most socially enjoyable. Not the offensive, rude ones. They're not hardly ever con men. They don't hardly, because they can't get close. Nobody trusts them. You're more likely to have a better outcome with somebody who's kind of abrupt and, and rude than the, the really, really, really likable. Do you know, do you know that the, that the uh, community pedophiles, not the ones who abuse their own kids, the ones who abuse the kids at the school or the church, the community pedophiles are almost always the people that everybody likes the most in the church. Did you know that? That's why everybody trusts them with their kids. We are really bad, folks, at making conclusions about people based on their public persona. Remember Bill Cosby? And I only bring him up because there's been now a court of law where evidence was presented and an independent uh, jury came to a conclusion based on evidence, not rumor, not allegation only. But prior to that, his public reputation was quite distinct from what happened in that court of law. I'm I'm not even judging. I'm just pointing out what happened in the court of law presented something about him that was completely contrary to what everyone would have thought. Yes or no? We are not very good at judging people, but that's how the media wants us to be. The media wants to present somebody's style as the reason that they're trustworthy. He's got good style. He's got bad style. And then I want to, I guess we're going to try and close with, um, I think it's the third paragraph. Um, yes, third paragraph. The woman in Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman, Jesus intentionally refuses her request initially so that she persists and her faith will grow. He eventually grants her desire. 
You know the story. My daughter, oh, even the, you know, go, the, the food doesn't go to the dogs, it goes to the children. Oh, but even the puppies or the, uh, you get the crumbs that fall from the table, so forth and so on. And a lot of people look at that and go, boy, that was pretty harsh, man. The dogs don't get that. You're calling me a dog? That would not be a politically correct comment today, folks. Somebody asks you for something and you say to them, hey, we, the food goes to the children, not to the dogs, okay? Uh, that's not, Jesus was clearly did not have proper political correctness. But he said this to her. Why? If you want something to get stronger, what do you have to do? You have to exercise. Whether it's physical for muscles or abilities like music or, or language. What about your faith? If you want your faith to get stronger, what do you have to do? Now, I want you to consider the following. You have a coach that gives their athletes exercises to do for this ball team. Uh, The exercises stress them, cause them pain, makes them sweat. The exercises are hard. It pushes them beyond what's comfortable for them. And the coach pushes them to do it. Is the coach for them or against them? What if the coach told a group of athletes on his team that because you come from poor homes, homes that only have one parent or homes in which you were abused as a child, that if you have come from those backgrounds, you are given a pass. You don't have to do the laps. You don't have to lift the weights. You don't have to run the drills and you don't have to study the playbook. Just show up for the games because we don't want to stress you. The coach says, you've had such a hard life already. It's been so stressful on you. I don't want to add more stress to you by demanding that you actually work hard at these drills, learn the same playbook, lift the same weights as the other athletes. That wouldn't be fair to you. It might discourage you. So you can go home while all the other students stay and work hard. What would you say about such a coach? Hmm, what happens if it's not a coach, but it's a teacher or social worker who tells students the same thing about their academics? Do you see the corruption in our society today? Because compassion eclipses reality. You cannot get stronger in any field without exercise. And if we love people, Jesus loved this Canaanite woman. She had disadvantages. She was not part of the chosen people. She didn't grow up with a priesthood teaching her things. She didn't have the sacrificial system. She didn't have a synagogue where she went to church to. She didn't have, she was disadvantaged. And Jesus did not coddle her and say, you're disadvantaged here. He challenged her to exercise the faith that she had so she would get stronger in faith. He loved her and wanted her to grow. What an amazing God we serve. Do you see how design law clarifies how reality works and brings helpful understanding to stories like this and allows us to become effective agents in a world that is spreading this this complete distortion of reality under the guise of compassion for people. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so humbled by you and so thankful for your love and the way you have constructed reality to work. We ask that that at this time in human history where where there are competing forces in the world that, that are tempting us to side with one group or another, that we don't get drawn in, that we stay firm 
on your kingdom of love and truth and freedom and promote your methods, which are always design law methods that bring, when applied, healing to hearts and minds. We ask that your Holy Spirit will enlighten, empower, transform, renew, and open avenues so that the world can be delighted and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.